At the end of your life, what will be your legacy? What will you leave behind for future generations? For the world, join the world messenger, Isabella Lundberg, each week as she brings you a new distinguished guest from the business, sports, or entertainment world to share their success, their struggles, and their lessons. They will share their insights into current hot topics that affect everyone. Isabella facilitates an intimate, vulnerable environment to find the true value of humanity and real leadership. Are you ready for your legacy? The legacy that matters? Hello, hello, my global friends. It's Isabella Lombacure, the world messenger, and I'm welcoming you to another episode of Legacy Leader Show. I'm super excited to have today's guest join me from Durham, North Carolina, and she has fascinating background. Oh my God, she is absolute firecracker, and I cannot wait in this next hour to undercover beyond her thought leadership, international consulting, anti-bullying expertise, uh, she has so much more to share. So please welcome Dr. Gail Hayes. Gail, welcome. Hi, thank you, Isabella. Thank you for having me on as a guest today. I am delighted. Absolutely. It's such a great um, bubble of positive energy that I'm just like, I am not only having audio for podcasts, but obviously video for audience because they have to get this little dose of positivity. So Aww. thank you for jumping on and, and, and joining us. Um, thank you. Do you mind, Gail, sharing a little bit about your background, your upbringing, and, and all, obviously... <laughs> Did you say a little? <laughs> <laughs> Let's start, you know, from early on. What really craft you uh, into somebody who is absolutely uh, very successful, obviously, in thought leadership and international business and diversity inclusion and so many pieces that obviously so many leaders are lacking today. So please tell us how somebody become one like yourself. Oh my goodness. Well, my upbringing is, um, I guess it's, I won't say it's um, normal. Well, okay. Normal is not a really good word. I'll just start by saying um, I was uh, born in Durham, North Carolina. And when I turned five years in the heart of the African-American community, um, when I turned five, my father was in the military. When I turned five, my father took me to Asia to live. And before I left, I was my grandmother's firstborn grandchild. And one of the things that happened to me as a little girl that I noticed that, that the rest of my siblings did not get um, was I spent a lot of time with my father's mother and she would, she saw who I was. I was kind of precocious. I asked a lot of questions. Uh, I was very curious about a lot of things. And she would hold my face and tell me, you're the prettiest, smartest girl in the world and nothing can change that. I mean, and she did this all the time. So I thought that everyone knew that I was pretty and smart. <laughs> that is I, fantastic. That is great attitude. Yeah, the first five years of my life were filled with being affirmed. And I spent a lot of my more time with my grandmother than I did with my own mother. Um, because I, my mother would just let me let her take me. She said, oh, let me take Gail and I'd go. So when my father went to um, join the military and went to Okinawa, it is now Okinawa, Japan. It wasn't back then. It was an occupied um, territory then. But went to Okinawa. Uh, we went and when I was five, I was almost six years old, was going to the first grade. Well, I didn't see anything different. I was still pretty and smart, but let me tell you what happened is that um, I'll never get, you know, most, many of us get these uh, Crayola crayons, you know, the, the, the thick ones. We get the yes, thick yes, ones. Yes. The jumbo is what they used to call them. And I got my jumbo crayons and I loved the color. I was always into color. I had a problem with them because 
there wasn't there weren't enough crayons to color my skin color of the, of the, when I was coloring. So I noticed that they had the big box with the sharpener in the back. And so I asked my mom, I said, can you get that for me? She said, when you go to the second grade, I'll get you that box of crayons. I couldn't wait. So I went to the second grade and there was a little boy who sat in front of me and he would go like this. I look up in my face. The teacher had to constantly tell him to turn around. Uh, and <laughs> he was, his name was Mike McDowell. And I will never forget Mike because um, he would look at my face and I thought, and it, and it was, this was during the time that I found that my grandmother had passed away. So I was looking to fill that void with something. And the, in my seven-year-old mind, the thing to fill it with was a boyfriend. So <laughs> when my mother got me this big box of crayons, the first thing I did was to find my skin color. The second thing I did, as a lot of women will do, and we don't want to admit it, is we find our boyfriend's skin color because it's near and dear to our heart. So I found my skin color and Mike's skin color, and I went to school armed with this knowledge. So one day when he was turning around looking at me, um, I said to him, I said, I need something. He said, what? I said, I need for you to be my boyfriend. Well, he shook his head no. Well, I thought maybe he didn't hear me. So I said, <laughs> I need for you to be my boyfriend. And he shook his head no again. So I said, why? I don't understand. And he was always telling me I was pretty and smart. So he knew what my grandmother told me. So I said, why? And he, I'll never forget, he changed my life with one finger. He rubbed the back of my left hand with one finger. And I looked at my hand, there was nothing there. And I finally said to him, what's wrong with my hand? Why did you rub my hand? And I'll never forget his words. He said, you're black. Well, see, I was ready for him. I said, I am not black, I am Sienna. I had found my color in the ground box. And I said, was something wrong with him? And I was really upset with this boy because he did not know his colors. Mm -hmm. How did he get to the second grade? Not knowing his colors. So he kept saying, no, you're black. And I was like, no, we argued for a minute. And I said, okay, if I'm black, what color are you? He said, I'm white. I said, no, you are not. You are salmon pink. <laughs> I, you know, I showed him the crayon that matched his skin color. And he became so angry with me. I'll never forget, I, I had never seen the back of his head before that I remembered. He had big pink ears and he was the prettiest little blue-eyed, blonde-haired boy I'd ever seen in my life. So I was just like, he had to be mine. So I didn't like him anymore because he was dumb because he did not know his colors. So I went home and asked my mom. When I got home, I said, mom, somebody called me a bad name today. And my mother said, what is, I said, I might call me black. My mother just looked at me and smiled, right? I said, because my mother, nobody ever told me I was black. I didn't know. I just knew I was pretty and smart. So I said, mom, look at me. Can't you tell I'm Sienna? And my mother just smiled and she said, well, that's what they call us. They call us black. They call us colored. They call us Negro. And I said to her, well, who is they? Because they need a box of crayons because they don't know their colors. And I, and I went on this lifelong journey for identity, trying to find out what is this thing called black? Why are people so mean to us? Um, why do we feel so badly about ourselves? And I felt like I was a stranger in a strange land because somebody knew something about me that I didn't know. So I went on a lifelong journey for identity. And so I created this, um, this principle called the IPD principle, identity, purpose, destiny. People are so busy looking for purpose and destiny without identity. If you don't know who you are, you will never know what belongs to you. So I went on this quest for identity, armed with the knowledge that I was pretty and smart, and now I was black. And I had to figure out what that meant. 
And so I had been raised outside of the black community, so to speak. So when we came back, um, I was 10 years old and went back into diversity in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, because I told you my father was in the military, he's in the army. And my father had to go to Korea and we couldn't go with him. And by this time, my father had five daughters and a son. And I'm the oldest of seven. He ended up having another one later. But um, they brought me back to Durham, North Carolina, and the schools were still segregated. Oh my God, what a nightmare for me. Well, I came back into segregated schools and I'll tell you, black people said I acted like I was white. I talked like I was white. I thought like I was white. And I didn't know what that meant because I knew that I was black, but I had a different view already because a different lens because I'd been outside of the United States. I couldn't wait and I was severely bullied. And I'll never forget this. Uh, we, we stayed with my grandfather because we only get, had to stay a year. My grandfather used to keep a pistol under his mattress, under his thing. And there were three girls who bullied me. And I had decided that um, I, I told on them, nobody could stop them. They came at me every week. They took my lunch money. I never got to eat lunch. I was living with this, this gut-wrenching pain. And the set, the, the, I will tell you that I'm going to be very real with you all, the audience, because we live please, through these. Please, because we need to understand and hear from, from experience from someone like yourself, because people cannot fathom that this exists for so long, that it exists in this yes. one time. Well, what was going on with me right now, right at that point in my life, I was 13 by this time. My father went to Korea and he was sending money back to my mom who had six children living in the house, a small house with her father. And I had two things happen, many things happening to me. The girls at school were bullying me. I was trying to do my schoolwork, still trying to be assistant to my mom who had six, so I had five younger siblings. And then we're living in the house with my grandfather and my grandfather came after me. Wow. At the same time. And then I was running from my grandfather, trying to keep him off me, being bullied at school. And my father was having an affair in Korea and wasn't sending money home. So my mother was racking her brains. I, I, had, to, you know, I had to learn to be strong. I was fighting on three fronts and I was 13 years old. And so I will never forget, I told my mom, well, I, I had to tell my mom what my grandfather, her father was trying to do to me. And we had nowhere else to go. So my mom had to have a talk with her father. Um, I was trying to manage it at school and my father was still not spending money. And let me tell you, I really just, that was when I realized the power of prayer. I just said, mom, we need to pray. And I, I mean, I didn't know what else to do. And I, I remember putting my hand on my mother's shoulder, her trembling shoulders. She was weeping because she was in despair that my father didn't send that much money. And I knew he had a girlfriend. I mean, I mean, this is, my father was interesting. That's another thing. That's why I do the work I do with men. I do a lot of work with men. Anyway, I said, okay, mom, we got to do something. So that, that week I decided to do something about these girls because nobody would do it because they always tell you, oh, they're jealous. That does not help a child who's being bullied. So I went in my grandfather's bedroom and got his pistol. There were three girls and there were six bullets. I figured if I missed her the first time, I hit her the second time. And I had already, back then we called it reform school. I knew then they'd send me to reform school and I'd only have to stay there until I was 18 and my record would be expunged. So I was gonna kill these girls. I made up my mind. I got the gun, put it in my purse, was coming out the door and I, I looked into my mother's eyes and I thought, my God, what will happen if I kill these girls and I, my, I'm not here to help my mother. And I, and I went back in the house, put the gun down and I went to school and handled my business. I actually fought one of the girls and put her down on the ground and stood on her and told the others back off. They all thought I was crazy. My grandfather backed off, I backed the girls off, and three days later, my mom's friend called her and said, 
then they, they, she found a job. Oh my God, this is so miraculous. She said, I found a job for you that you can take your two, your two, my, my, sibling, my younger brother and sister were really little, they were in preschool. She said, you can take them with you. It's interviewing women and discovering what they need for their, their children um, in terms of education. She helped to get the data for Sesame Street and the electric company. Wow, that is amazing. And this is after we prayed, after I prayed for her. It happened within days. Everything was resolving itself in days. And I learned the power of prayer and believing and standing in a strong place. So I watched my mom get $7.50 an hour, which was a lot of money in 1968. And it was a grant and it was tax-free. I watched my mom get her own money for the first time. She got her own money. It was the first time she had a job since she'd been married. I watched my grandfather back off and I backed the girls off in school. And by the time we did all this work, my father comes back from Korea and takes us out of the African-American community back into the military. I went to Arizona for a while. Then I went to Monterey Bay, California to high school. Then I was in this place that was just wonderful going to the beach for lunch. Oh, just wonderful. And then I get, my father gets orders for Germany. Um, this is my senior year. So December of my senior year, I have to move and come back to North Carolina from California and graduate with those same girls who bullied me. Come back, and I only went six months to that high school. And I had to learn how to survive in a very different way. And I did because I was a different person. Then we lived there and went to Germany. And I, I stayed there. As soon as we got there, my mom gets pregnant with my baby brother, child number seven. I'm 19 years older than him. As soon as he's, he's born, I come to Washington, D.C. Now, here's the thing. Remember, I'm a black woman. You know, I'm a black woman. My mother sends me back to live with relatives in Washington, D.C. to go to college. I get to Washington, D.C. And in Washington, D.C. is called Chocolate City. Wow, okay? do you want to tell a little bit more why? I, I well, never heard that. Statistics, but it was like over 70% of the people there are black. Okay. Even though it's the nation's capital, it's called Chocolate City. And so I had never seen so many black people in my life. So I called my mother because I had not had good experience with black people. I called my mother in Germany. I said, I have to come home. And she said, why? I said, mommy, there's too many black people here. I don't like it. And I'll never forget what my mother said to me. Because I had had bad experiences with black people because they said I acted white. I said, I don't want to be here. My mother says, don't worry, baby. You'll blend right in. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> oh, wow. What a, what a journey. What a roller coaster ride on upbringing. And as an educator, uh, I just have to say, uh, you, you had uh, two choices, uh, cave in and, and uh, be victim or to be victor. And it seems like you, um, as many of strong women that I know in my life, uh, really went head on and tackled that as a, as a pro very strongly and very powerfully. Kudos. I didn't, I didn't know what else to do. And there was no one to teach me. And so I learned, what I learned though was the power of my, um, of my foundation, learning how, jumping out of the black community, going to this multicultural environment and learning who was who. And I became like a little celebrity when we were in Okinawa. They were taking my pictures with everybody because we had to, I ended up having every year having my picture taken with the Emperor of Japan's doll collection because I looked Asian when I was little and the Asians really liked me. So everywhere I went, I was like a little white light and people would get angry about that, but I, I had, I have learned, one of the things that I've learned in my life now is that I've tried to diminish my light many times to make other people feel comfortable. So many years I diminished myself just so others would feel more comfortable. And basically what happened, they, sat, they stepped on my spine and tried to crack my back because they wanted to be elevated, but it didn't last. 
So I'd always end up being this person. Cannot be sustained because doesn't have a right foundation, doesn't come from within, and 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 that is why it never lasts. And yes. living somebody's life, light, uh, it's just a temporary solution, but also it's a fear base because those yes. others didn't feel confident, comfortable, and secure who they are. They knew that they're weaker. They could see the power and, and energy that comes from it. So, Well, I never saw it. That was the, the bad part for me was that I didn't see it. I didn't believe it. And I came from a, I'm just going to be real. I come from a family of jealous women. Um, from my mom all the way down, it's like, it's uh, six women. And as a result, and part of that, I didn't, you know, when I look back, I wonder how I survived. It had to be something to do with uh, spirit, spiritual, the creator, because I'm telling you, I should have been, I should have been crazy. I literally crazy. Um, of the six women in my family, I think I am, there's one of six of us, four of them have been, uh, have emotional maladies. Uh, and I would say the, the other one does too. I haven't. Um, I've been untouched by that. And that's why I'm able to do what I do with women. I can see that on women. And I have this, the gift of what they call the gift of exhortation. I love ex encouraging. And, and, so, and so many of us don't get the encouragement that we need. So many of us don't that have mirror, very holders. True. mirror holders. We don't have people who can stand in front of us and say, what do you see? What do you, what, I said, no, no, that's what do you see. Did you see that? I love holding the mirror up to other women and helping them to see how wonderful they are, how powerful they are, and to access that power that they have, not just for themselves, but for, the, for others. And I always say this, you have a choice. You can either influence or infect the atmosphere. I love Ask, that. Which love one, what are you that. doing? Are you influencing? Are you infecting? I said, the every time you go to another woman with, I'm going to give you a story. I have a story about this. I used to be um, affiliated with an organization called NAFI, the National Association for Female Executives. I was, I did, I had their first um, chapter, first active European chapter. And we gave a conference. Anyway, came back to the United States in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, decided they were going to form a NAFI chapter. Well, somebody contacted me. They didn't know my background with NAFI and asked me would I come to the meeting. I said, of course. I would, they asked me to speak. Then they asked me to be the director. Okay. So one of the first things I do if I'm a director is I go about looking at the uh, corporate cl uh, climate and seeing what needs to be extracted from that because oftentimes there's so much toxicity. I love to extract toxicity and throw it out the window. So I remember we were having a meeting and the women were standing around talking before the meeting started and there were three women standing close to me and this is the conversation. Then one of them said, I don't know why my daughter keeps getting in trouble and they keep accusing her of bullying somebody or being mean and the other one says, you know, I'm having the same problem with my daughter. The third one says, yeah, I don't know what's going on. And their daughters were friends and they were talking about what are we going to do about that? How are we going to do this? How are we going to change? I didn't say a thing. A woman comes through the door. And the three of them immediately the conversation changed. Oh my God, I hope she doesn't come over here. I can't stand her. Do you know the way she wears her hair? I mean, they just started denigrating this woman. The woman comes up to them and she's delighted. Hi, I'm so glad to see you. Brother. And they're like, oh, let's just go get a seat. And, they, and, and we're gonna be sitting down in a minute. We'll see you. They leave. I turn to the women. I said, ladies, I heard you discussing your daughters. Yeah, we're just really troubled. I said, did you see what you just did to that woman? That's why your daughters are doing what they're doing. I said, they're mimicking their mothers. Absolutely. Said, Everything starts at home. Absolutely. I said, they, she, they are eating female flesh, just like you just ate that woman for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They were horrified. They couldn't believe I did this. And I said, until we stop doing that to other women, 
we are showing, I see your daughters are doing what they see you do. They were horrified at their daughter's um, uh, behavior. I said, you are doing exactly, your daughters are mimicking you. They were bright red in the face. I said, ladies, until we change our narrative and change how we treat each other, even if we don't like each other, you can still respect each other. It's never going to change because we're passing this sickness, this infection down to the next generation. I'll never forget that. And when I got up to do um, the, you know, open the meeting, one of them says, as stands and asks, can she speak? There's probably about a hundred women there. Um, one of them stands and she's crying. And she says, I don't know who the rest of you are. I don't know if you know this woman, but we need to stick with this because she is amazing. She's talking about me. I'm like, what? She says, I told women, because I told them, I said, look, it's time for us to call each other out. Part of the problem is why women haven't, to me, haven't made more advancement is because we don't call each other out. We want to dress it up and put perfume on it. It's like it's like you have this beautiful room, right? And you have you can, uh, the landscaping outside the room is wonderful. You got the mirrors, you got the pastel walls, and you got to put the carpet down. What happens is the night before you put the carpet down, a dog comes in and defecates on the floor, and you because you left the door open so the paint could dry. Instead of cleaning the floor, we put beautiful carpet down, and the room still stinks because we have not cleaned. Or, that's how I see a lot of times with women. We have this hidden stuff and it stinks. And the only way you're going to do it is to humble yourself. Get on your knees and pull the carpet up. Because that's a position of humility. And so many of us have been so hurt, we're afraid to be vulnerable. Anyway, you want to say something? <laughs> no, 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 it's like, no. What I just wanted to say, that is so true. Uh, but it's also a lot of times that woman to woman and, and just general group of women, um, uh, attacking other women sometimes not obvious sometimes behind the back sometimes is done in such a sneaky way which is unfortunate and i'm seeing fair share of that even through nonprofit organizations uh and and and, and things we're supposed to be all about helping others and serving and with 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 and leading with the heart with the highest self right yeah and, and kind of unselfish in this unselfish way and then and then experiences in corporate america and through consulting arena through business side of things and different large corporations it is just so disheartening because often i i, I would just observe um because I will check whole climate of, of makeup of, of whole organization. And sure. sometimes, sometimes sadly, you can't say much because you're there, you know, as external, as external advisor or consultant, or you're there on very specific, um, you know, project, uh, or you are part of that culture, but then you know you are literally one unit or maybe two, you know, and it's like, I have to play this smarter. It's not right climate to say something. Or if you tried, then you got completely bashed and slashed. So it just, I hope that with these changes that we're seeing, people start revisiting what they're contributing, who right. they are, how they're showing right. up. Because right. right now they are fooling themselves if they, people think they're not visible. They're fooling themselves if they think that their leadership is um, not stinky and, and it's not damaging. Just because people don't go uh, in very detrimental, deteriorating uh, ways and bashing ways, that doesn't mean Absolutely. they don't know that we're being um, victims of, of injustice. Absolutely. And, and Absolutely. that comes in so many shapes and forms, right? Absolutely. I think that um, what happens is, like I was saying earlier, I, I had started this but I, I with women and I just didn't finish the work because I had to stop and pay attention to my young adult children when they were teenagers then. It's, it's, um, 
it's one it's simple to me call each other out that women are afraid to call each other out and for me i'll stop i don't really care i'll say excuse me and i think you have to be you have to be called to be in that position. And, and oftentimes uh, women like me are, 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 are um, banished because women don't wanna hear the truth. And you have to be, I've been in places where they just act like I didn't there. And I say, excuse me, I am going to speak because I've been called to call people to order that way. You have to have a, uh, that has to be part of your purpose. Mm -hmm. And because I worked with men, and I see how men do things. You know, um, part of my journey, I uh, was the first uh, black female police officer and firefighter in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Wow, I did and, not know that. That is yeah, amazing. I was. How did you get into that? Well, Tell us. Because of my personality, I had no desire. My background is fashion. I always wanted to do fashion stuff. And anyway, I worked. Part of my journey after I came back to the United States and I was in Washington, D.C., I ended up working on Capitol Hill. Um, and there's a building right now on Capitol Hill across from Union Station in Washington called the Hall of the States. And I helped to open that building. I work for the National Governors Conference and the National Conference of State Legislatures. And this it's a lobbyist building. And I remember they asked me to leave because I hadn't finished college at the time. And they said, we want to hire you, but we, can, we you have to get this, this, and this. And I said, okay, probably. But before I left, I won an award called the Outstanding Leadership in State Government from the National Governors Conference. They said, you have such leadership. And I was 22. They said, you are, you're such a natural leader. And these were white men who said this to me. They said, you are such a leader. I want you to, we want you to go back and figure out exactly what you want to do. I didn't want to do that. I probably would have been a good lobbyist. But anyway, uh, I left there. And that's when I went, to, went back to college for a time. And I had to leave um, the school where I was attending because I was being sexually harassed by a professor. And that Me Too movement, I never really told my story. He was forcing me to have sex with him in his office. And I was like, I had no rescue because I was 22. So they, there was nothing to be said. And I'll never forget, during that time, I saw a notice. And this is funny how things come together. There was a notice for a play. And they were having a cattle call. And I had already been in the theater in Washington, D.C. That's another part of my life. I'm a creative and so I decided to go to the call, casting call and they didn't know what to do with me. People just don't know what to do with me because I know my light is very bright. And so they didn't, I was, they said I was too strong for one of the leads. So they put me in the course, but they always put me up front because I um, also sing. Um, I act sing and at the time I dance. So they put me in the front. I was asked to go to Broadway as a result of that. But I met this young man who was in the um, production who was at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And a couple of my friends and I went to Chapel Hill to visit him. And it reminded me of Georgetown in Washington because it was a college town. Chapel Hill was a college town. And I thought, oh my God, you need to tell me I can get in this environment in North Carolina. So as a result, me and um, I became really good friends with this guy. He's like my brother. And he got invited to go to a dinner party uh, hosted by one, a pastor who had the chief of police there. And they brought James in and they introduced James. I was with James and they introduced him to the chief of police. And the police chief said, now James, the application date is closed. However, if you come in in the morning, I'll let you fill out an application. And I said, and so I said to him, I was listening, and this man was ignoring my presence. 
And so I got irritated by that. And I said, well, I'm interested too. I'm interested too. I don't want to be a police officer. And he turned his back on me during the conversation. I, and I said, James, I'm going with you. I went with him the next day, filled out an application, went through the process. Guess what? I got hired. He didn't. Wow. <laughs> That is such an interesting situation. Because I hope James didn't man, get upset. This white man turned his back on me, and I was like, how rude is that? So what I did, I ended up working. I became the first black female police officer and firefighter in Chapel Hill. I did that for six years. It was one of the most rewarding jobs I have ever had. Um, I actually helped. I would be, venture to say that I actually made a difference because I was told I made a difference by the men there because I was calling them out. The stuff that you see on social media, I was saying, what are you doing? And I was talking to them and I realized, I, I have this incident that I talked about when the, uh, the BBC interviewed me and they asked me, can you tell me something that lets you know where you really were in law enforcement? And this was the thing. There was always this radio traffic that says suspicious black male headed wherever. Every black man that walked the streets was suspicious. It is a culture of law enforcement. And I was a black woman and I was saying it too. And I caught myself one night because the radio traffic was a guy was walking. I knew the guy because I got out and walked. He was a night chef for a restaurant and he was walking home. And the traffic was suspicious black male headed East Dunn Franklin or whatever. And, it's, and another one said, God, I got him. And I was there. I said, no. He is the night chef. And I realized at that moment, it was solely, totally and completely systemic. And when you go into law enforcement, at least when I went in, I was no longer black, I was blue. So I was able to call the guys out that I was working with and say, wait a minute. What are, you doing? Let's visit this. Yes. what are you doing? And I will tell you, I had one of them to call me and we're all, he's an old man now in his sixties, almost 70. He called me when he started seeing this stuff on social media. He said, Gail, was that us? I said, absolutely it was. And he said, oh my God, because I was stopping them from doing things. I said, do you guys not see this? So I was their work wife, so I would not talk to them. I would ignore. Why are you not talking to me? I put my hand up. I said, until you stop doing this stuff, this has got to stop. I was talking to these guys about what they were doing, and this was in the 80s. And so they finally said to me, you know what, Gail, you need to be somewhere global where you can make a difference. I want to cry. I'm thinking about some of the things they said to me when they, they said, you need to go somewhere where you can really help people at a higher level and it has to trickle down to us. He said, you know, I mean, the guys came to me and said this to me back in 1984. Okay. And they were like, you need, your voice needs to be heard globally. This is law enforcement, white law enforcement officers were saying this to me. And they said, the way that you talk and the way you've taught us this is what they said. They said, whenever we are going into a dangerous situation and we hear you check on as the car that's going to cover us, we know we're going to come out alive because of the way that you handle people. You should be teaching people in a different place and space. And I'll never forget the impact that law enforcement had on me. It helped me to find my identity and the firefighters. Oh my God, they were like brothers to me. Um, and and they, they took care of me and I took care of them. And I will say that, you know, a lot of women went through a lot of things in terms of dis dis discrimination. Yeah, I went through it too, but I was always the kind of person, like, excuse me, why are you doing this? I was always that girl.
you were always addressing it. You were always nipping in a bud. You always had a way to you that you felt because you already had a build up relationship and connection with these guys. So you knew how to navigate that, that they could digest it, accept it, and also do something about it, which is very I mean, powerful. I mean, Not everybody that. have that skill set and, and, and it's oh. very powerful. And you know what's so sad about it? The leadership did not like it because of I- Of course, because I you're changing status quo and you're forcing, forcing change that they don't like it because it's easier to control what they already yes. have. That's why the purposely leaders that, that are in position in companies having leadership roles, but don't have a leadership skill sets. Two different yes. things. And they were upset because I could galvanize the guys and say, okay. And of course you always have the ones who want to, you know, um, who want to be in, who want to ascend, so to speak, and they come against you, they can never get anything on me. And I would be like, I finally said, why do you guys keep calling me in the office? I haven't done anything but do my job. And let me tell you what I did learn. I worked on Capitol You've Hill. You've been difficult, Gail. <laughs> You've been challenging. What, let me tell you what I did that they didn't understand. They needed, they needed a double minority and they got me and they didn't understand, they didn't know my background really. So what happened was this, it's very funny. They hired me- Undermined your knowledge and skill set and capability. I worked on Capitol Hill. Okay, so you know what I understood? And when raised in a military community, I understood the power of volunteering. So when I got to be a law enforcement officer, I became a big brother, a big brother, big sister program. I became a Girl Scout leader. I got my own little brownie troop and the governor recognized me and they were, everybody was wondering, what's wrong with the police department? They don't know who you are. It was so, it was so much pressure. And then I got appointed as the first black chair of the Orange County Commission for Women, where I was supposed to be the official spokeswoman uh, for the women of my county, monitoring um, women's issues um, nationally and regionally and locally. And I had to advise the county commissioners. And I was doing this and they didn't know what to do with me because I was almost untouchable because the community was saying, we love her. What are you doing? And I'm not talking about black people. I'm talking about all the people because I was serving people. I understood the power of service. And so the leadership tried their best to come up with things to denigrate me. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why, but it doesn't matter. But every time they tried, it didn't work because you know what happened? Oh my God, the, the, my fellow officers, white officers stood up for me and said, oh, we don't know anything about that. I mean, it was like the code. I was blue and they closed ranks around me against the leadership and said, why are you bothering Gail? Gail's good. I mean, it was just, I, white men did this for me. So because I understood something that my father taught me above all things, and women forget this, men want to be honored. Even when they are dishonorable, we should still honor them. Well, I'm not going to do that, but then you're not going to get anywhere because every door we want to go into just about is guarded by a man. And I said, even if, even if he is dishonorable, you still need to honor him. I said, because guess what they will do? They will, they'll think about how awful they were if you don't, you don't allow him to pull you into his quicksand. You stand there and say, okay, I'll be back. But I know you're a man of power and I know you can help me. So I'll be back. And you walk away. He'll think about that thing. I'm telling you, that's how they are. It, it never fails. You come back and say, I'm, I'm back now. Okay, I'll, I'll come back again. They will eventually do something for you without you even asking. If you don't allow him to pull you into his quicksand of dishonor, you as a woman must remain honorable no matter what. I have seen men fall, men open doors, men do things who would not, who would not budge for another woman 
because they want to sit back and talk stuff about him or go back and, and devise schemes against him. I'm telling you, I've seen it work. We don't understand uterus magic. We don't understand how powerful we are, but we turn on each other and then we turn on our men and we can't figure out why we're not getting where we need to go. That's just me personally. I learned that working with men that, you know, if we can come together as women and stop killing each other and, 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 and um, tearing apart each other and learn the, the cohesiveness of our power and say, okay, we're going to do this together. I mean, the, the female of the species is always the most dangerous and including us. We're dangerous, but we're powerful. We're influential and we misuse our power. And so I always make it a, a point to call other women out. It's not a comfortable place to be, but it's part of who I am. I say, excuse me, why did you say that about her? Excuse me, what are you doing? You know the little things that they do? I was raised in a family of women who manipulate in the background and all of them because they were afraid of being direct. And I'll never forget, my father would come in, he ruled the roost, he'd come in, blah, 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 and everybody would run and scatter except for me. And they it got to the point where they say, well, we need to do this. Let Gail ask daddy, let Gail ask him. And so I would come to my father and I'd say, dad, I need you. He'd go, blah, 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 blah. You know, my father would cuss. He'd say all kinds of stuff. I would just stand there. And I'd say, well, when you finish cussing, can you answer my question? And he would go, what? <laughs> <laughs> love it, love it, love it. And I said, well, daddy, wait a minute. Um, I just need to, he said, I said, daddy, why did you say no? Can you tell me just why, if I understand, then I'll understand why you, you know, what you Challenge, challenge and status quo, love and it. I'm still honoring. And he said, go ahead. I said, is that a yes? All right, yes. And, I, and, and my mother and my sister would go, how did you get him to say yes? I said, well, I just waited for him to stop saying all that stuff. And I asked him again, I said, can you give me a reason? And so I, my father taught me that um, men will often go, blah, 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 blah. but when they do that, women get upset ah! and they want to go somewhere and cry. No, what you do is two words, be queen. What do queens do? You stand and you wait and you say, this is what I need in a very nice way. Just because they act like a pig doesn't mean you have to get in the mud with them. I mean, and I tell women that all the time. I said, I love that. That is so, so true. But we do that and when we judge them, well, they're pigs. So they, I said, well, my question to you is if you're bad mouthing them and they're in leadership, uh, what kind of leader are you gonna be? Because you're already bashing. You need to change the atmosphere before you get there and have an expectation that it's gonna turn out well. Your words are powerful. When you go in, the Red Sea of opposition should part before you as a woman, because that's the kind of power we have, but we don't do it. Well, they ignore me. No, they don't. Shut up. Stop saying that. You will just tell yourself, I will not be ignored and go in. And they'll say, people will say, well, Gail, that's you. I said, no, it's you too. I said, I have seen women. I've helped women change their narrative. All of this stuff that we're, that's going on right now, whatever you think you're going to believe is whatever words you think you're going to believe in your heart is going to come out of your mouth. What's coming out of your mouth? And I say, what are you saying? You are creating your word with your words. So you've got to be able to change the narrative. And everything about this going on right now is about changing the narrative, changing and owning the conversation, and changing the languaging that we're saying. I said, I'm telling you, women are so linguistic. We are so gifted. And yet we're using our stuff the wrong way. I sat back like this and I go, oh my God, did you hear what you just said? Even with our children. That's you know, it's, Go ahead. It's so true, Gail. And then one of the reasons I have to say from generations to generations, I also had a very strong foundation with my grandma as well, because my mom was working mom and very busy. 
yes. but the foundation I had, the values and everything, those are the things that help me also navigate hardships and challenging situations, but also never jeopardizing, you know, my own values, the values that uh, were instilled in me. But I have to say, there was no courses, classes, or conversations about male and female dynamics. Yes. How they respond, how they act, what is natural tendency by male versus natural tendencies by female. Why female generationally accumulated to this level. There was no way to navigate that. And then yes. without knowing where these people coming from, and when you're dealing with so many international people, like as I was mentioning to you, with over 100 plus countries worldwide that, that experienced the worst hardships, there yes. was no, never any of these dynamics. I have to say, I never had these dynamics till I came really in this society. So I, I'm first generation immigrant myself. I came here as a refugee. So uh -huh. being exposed to all this makeup of this culture took me so long to navigate uh, because there were so different codes. Yes, we do have a, a you know, old yeah. boys club and then you have these clubs and then you have these combinations but was always un unclear where the woman stand and women could shift in a two seconds today would be one thing and five hours later will be another and, right. and, and 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 it was always really challenging just because depending of culture depending of scenario you will be exposed for such a different uh, um a situation so if you don't mind sharing with all the experience you have obviously very effective working with male as well with females yes how did you arrive to this obviously years of experience and knowledge but what would you suggest and what you would recommend you know based on those um core uh distilled key points what can we do to create this not insulary uh, society where we have so much polarization, but where we have yes. opportunity to really blend and connect and see this as a gift, as a, as a greater tapestry of knowledge, experiences that can help us uh, for greater good. Well, you know, I guess one of the biggest things I see lacking, honestly, is authenticity. Because we don't um, like who we are, right? So right. it's hard to show up that face. It's easier to fake it. And yep. so here's here's what I see. I noticed this when I'm my own sisters, and of course that that's just a microcosm of the a body of women at large. Is that there's three things I see. Comparison leads to competition, which leads to corruption, which means there is no collaboration and no community. Wow, five C's right there. There are absolutely amazing. I'm writing this in my book called The Conduct of Queens, which will be out uh, later this year or the beginning of 2021. Uh, but I noticed that I started, I started noticing different things. Comparison, when you compare yourself with another woman, you automatically compete with her. So comparison leads to competition. It's usually not healthy competition, which leads to corruption, which means there's, there can be no um, incorruptible uh, tie between you. You can't come together because you got this comparison Okay, and then you, there's this competition, which leads to a breakdown in any healthy relationship you can have. That means you cannot really fully collaborate, which means you cannot form community. And that's really what, so how do you destroy that? Well, first of all, I'm gonna tell you, it's very simple, but it's very hard. You've got to accept who you are, that powerful woman called you. You've got to accept all your strengths, all your weaknesses, all the things that make up you and understand and, and know that you are put here for a reason. 
You were put here for a purpose, probably beyond anything that you imagine. And it's not just your job. How do you touch And not people? your title and not perception you know, of others. All that is irrelevant. If you were stripped of your titles and stuff today, what would be left? Some people would say nothing. That's how men think. That's not how women are supposed to think. Men are their jobs. We're not our jobs. There's so much more to us than that. We're so multifaceted. And one of the things that I've discovered is that women try to be too much like men. And that always comes back to, well, I've got to get this, and this is the way the system goes, and I've got to be this in corporate, I've got to be that in corporate. But to me, corporate means incorporating you. That's the first thing. What are you doing uh, for yourself? And my thing is, if in fact you keep going for promotion and you don't get it, maybe you're in the wrong place. Maybe you're in the wrong place. Maybe you're in the wrong space. It's like, um, who is that I was talking to very recently? I was talking to a woman very recently who knew this woman who was in corporate, was doing all this stuff and she was really an entrepreneur. She was creating all this stuff within the corporate structure. They didn't know what to do and they refused to um, uh, promote her because they were threatened. She did, finally said, I, you know what? I'm not hitting the glass ceiling. See, see, when I was doing things, I had a hammer with me and I cracked glasses. That's just me. I, she said, I'm not doing this. She, get, she came out of corporate and formed her own company. It was more successful. And now the same corporation she was working for contracts with her. And asking her for advice and support and help. Of course. Of but, course. But what she did was she didn't leave speaking badly about them. She didn't leave um, trying to hurt people. She just said, this is really not the place for me anymore. Thank you so much. And she was very gracious when she left. And because of that, a, a, she, a part of her income now is from that same company. They're paying her more than what she was making. So what I'm saying is so many times we can't see those things as women. We're so busy um, trying, we can, be, we can build our own systems. Can you imagine if all of us respected and honored one another we saw and we always celebrated each other's gifts, no matter what. How hard is it, is it for you to say, you're amazing. I saw what you did with that. Can you help me do that? And what can I do to help you? Can you imagine that's what men do? And they do it instinctively. In, in, well, they're as intuitive as they are, as they can be, they do it. The first thing they do is how can we can do a mission? But anyway, we do we, co comparison leads to competition, which leads to corruption, which means there can be no collaboration and no community. Here's how you get rid of it. Number one, the, what I told you, I think I shared with you briefly, the IPD principle, identity, Please. purpose, destiny, identity. It's time for us to go on a search for identity about who we really are. And if we don't know, ask somebody, what do you see me doing well? How do you think I can improve? Now, look, don't get offended if they tell you something. It's not to hurt your feelings. If you ask the questions, be ready for the answers. Even if they're not totally what you see is true, there's always some truth in some things that people say. I've always had, I've had to learn that. It hurt my little feelings, but I had to go back and say, is this true? Is this how I feel? Is this how I look in the mirror? Most of us do not want to do mirror time. We don't want to look in the mirror and see how awesome we are, and then also areas where we need to, where we need to put on a little highlighter, you know, <laughs> a little bit enhancement, a little improvement. <laughs> yeah, put some lipstick on. Well, you might change your color of lipstick. I mean, there's always some way to do, do it better. Identity, finding out who you are, not by reading everybody else's books, but by spending time by yourself and reflecting, writing down your thoughts. And then say, is this a good thought? How do I change that? I've got to change what I say about myself. 
Mm-hmm. I'm going to change how I feel about others. When it, and what are your triggers? Finding those out. What is it that makes me not like this woman? And there is a lot of them is because you see yourself, or this may be, she may act like someone who hurt you. How are you going to get past that? You might need to have a coach or someone to help you, but, but you can, it is, it is doable. It can be done. Finding out who you are, what makes you tick. And you might find that you're in the wrong job. You might find you're in the wrong place. Does this, and then also one thing I tell women, I strongly recommend you write your personal mission statement. You need to craft your personal mission statement. And what does that mean? I have a personal mission statement. I can't remember what it is right now because I live it every day. I ought to, but I want to change the world through, through words, reading, writing, and speaking. I'm a quotologist and help people become who they are and not and, and influence and not infect the atmosphere. That's what I do. I go in with the intention that I am like Neosporin. I get rid of infection when it comes in front of me. I mean, I just drive it out. I don't care who it's in. And one of the things about me, because I'm such a bright light, that if there is any infection present, it comes out in my presence. When I get around women, if they're going, I know immediately who's the, who, the, who the toxic women are. They don't have to open their mouths. And you know what I do? I immediately make it my business to go into them and speak to them and push until the infection comes out. Tell them how awesome they are. Go, go to them because they can infect the whole group. And it's so obvious to me because that's my area of gifting. I can see the toxic women. But when you have toxicity in, in your presence, it's difficult for you to be healed, for you to be whole. So I do that. I go in and identity, when you find out who you are, you will never find out your purpose until you embrace your identity. Once you find out who you are, then you say, okay, why am I here? Let me see. What are the things that I do that, that make me feel like I have a tidal wave of joy, an, an avalanche of love? What are those things? They're, they exist. And then and only then when you find destiny. Destiny is just a, desti- a destination. Where are you going? Most people don't stop and ask themselves that question. See, I stopped and asked myself those questions because I kept running into roadblocks. And I was like, people kept trying to tell me who I was. And I'm like, I don't want that. I want to know for myself. So I know now it's something that you said earlier about me. I am a bright light, a bright light. And I've tried for years to diminish that light, but here's what I know now. When you are a bright light and you come into a dark room, only two things scatter, rats and roaches. Very, very true, very, very true. And so guess what? The rats and roaches have to go, but everyone else will put on their sunglasses and they will be able to see the gifts that the darkness hid with their names on them. And then I can say, you see that? That's your gift over there. That's your gift over there. And they're like, oh my God, instead of killing me, and I know I can't stay in the room too long, I go to the next room. I've learned that I can't put, put big roots down in many places because of how I was created. I am created to go in and be a bright light, a bright light of love and joy. My name means joy, love and joy. Gale force winds, the beginning of the hurricane. I come in like a tornado, not to destroy, but to stir up things, the atmosphere, so things, so change can happen. And so that people can be able to see and get rid of the debris so they can live again, so they can love again, they can find peace and joy. That's what I do. It sounds like like a cliche, but it's really what I do. And so I've learned that's who I am and to accept it. And embrace it and then now know how to purpose it in the best possible light and how to share your gifts with others that they can not only accept it, but they can learn from it and make it that lasting permeated transformation that is really, really important and needed. 
and how timely with the times that we're living right now, Gail, with everything that is pandemic have, uh, bringing up and, and steering things up. Because obviously world that we knew doesn't exist anymore. It's not gonna be no. the same. And I love um, one of the quotes that Darwin said, obviously, you know, the ones who are quickest to adopt, not the one that are most intelligent will survive. Right. And, and now it's a true point. And what I learned, and I love what just validates everything, your years of experience that you had ahead of me is uh, how much we really do go through stages and changes and how much we need to be in tune because our purpose and mission was very different when we we're in our 20s and 30s. That changes yes. when we're in 40s, 50s, 60s. Right. And it's very important to adjust and, 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 and embrace yourself. If you don't love yourself, then you cannot be the love for others. That's you cannot exactly right. Life for yourself. If you diminish in your light, you cannot be the light for others. So That's right. it's a very, very um, important. Um, and I love how you navigate your power, how you're aware of your power, and uh, how you utilize in most effective ways now. Well, it, it took me a long time to get here because I didn't accept myself because I had so many people telling me who they thought I was and that's what happens. And, you know, people will make little snide remarks about, oh, you know how you are. Oh, um, well, Gail, you know, we weren't sure if this was the right place for you so we didn't ask you to come in. Uh, when I hear people say stuff like that, it used to hurt me so badly. And what they were really saying is they didn't want any truth in the room. They really wanted, um, <clears throat> they wanted people to remain in darkness. So I realized that I finally had to just say, this is who I am, this is what I bring, and here are some things in my suitcase that are, that are, are filled with pain. Okay, how do I do, deal with these people, this part? Do I throw it away, or do I, or, or do I look, look for a place for what you just said, transformation? How do I transform these things into something good? It's almost like you have a, your suitcase and it's filled with coal. How do you stop at a place where you let that coal become diamonds? I mean, everybody has, has those experiences and we can either leverage them positively or negatively. It really, and you know what, when you do things negatively, it hurts you worse than the people that you're upset with. It really does. And before you know it, everything inside of you is, is, is corroded and corrupted and you don't know, then you don't want to ask for help because you've hurt so many people. So you're alone and you're toxic. Nobody wants to be bothered with you and you can't figure out why. But you know, eventually people get tired of people who start trouble. Eventually people will find you out because there are spiritual laws in place. What you, what you sow, you're going to reap. If you're constantly saying negative things about people and doing, uh, developing uh, plots against people, they're gonna be against you. And it's what's that, that saying, it says, I'm gonna give you enough rope to hang yourself. The bottom line is, if you continue on a path that's negative and you continue to say negative things, even when we're talking about business, about men, we're never gonna get where we want to go with them because we keep talking negatively about them and that comes back to us as women. It comes back and rests in our offices. It comes back and rests in our houses, what we say, because we are influential with our words. And so I always say to women, I said, okay, what do you want? Well, I don't know, Most when I ask those people, they don't know what they want. I just want to be true. They're lost and not self-aware and they're not, yes. they, they feel like helpless. They don't know, yes. they don't know that they have a power within and right. they don't, truly don't. They never maybe had that positive cheerleader or, or positive affirmative person in their life that saw that. Yeah, they don't know. And they don't know what they really want. Well, I want a promotion. Okay. If you get a promotion, what type of promotion specifically? I have been in places where, um, 
they didn't know what to do with me and they create i created my own position i said well let me have this position i said well i don't like any of those but this is where i see a need can i do this and they're like what i created my own position only because i see things with positive eyes even though it's a negative situation you got to learn that most of the things that happen are not about you Absolutely. Most of the things that happen in a job are not about you. They're about people getting power wherever they can. And if they if they feel threatened, it's not you personally, it's what you bring. They it's it's like they don't know you, they don't know your family life, they don't know your relationships, they don't know things about you that you don't bring to work, but it's really not about you. But we always and what we happens what happens with us is that when people quote unquote seem to attack us, we make it personal. We think, oh, they don't like me. Oh, oh. And I'm like, sometimes it is not about you personally. It's about what they think you might uh, shine a light on that they're doing, what you, what you might uh, block What them. you're challenging them on or what you're yes. actually having better, greater possible way to do yes. it, but they simply don't want to So I had a situation when, 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 uh, when this particular person, just because idea came from me, even though it was the right thing to do, he could not uh -huh. accept that. And, and and he tried to sabotage and he did sabotage, but you know, even after I left, um, did not work because it could not be sustained, as you said, you know, so it couldn't be duplicated. Times. It couldn't be duplicated because it came from you. And, and this is what I tell people. They say, Well, people take my ideas. I said, Let me tell you something, something I know. One of the things I've learned over the years is that I've had people steal things from me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna right now, this happened this, since yesterday. Eight years ago, no, 12 years ago, I came up with a concept for a conference. And I shared it with a woman and asked her not to share anything. We were at this big uh, event. Before the event ended, she brings a group of women to me and says, well, we decided that we're going to help you with this event. I'm like, I asked you not to share it. They took it and started running with it like as if it were their own. And I had no choice but to go with them. And I was so upset. But I got the funding for it because of my contacts. We put it on and I was in the midst of a really trying time in my marriage. And I and they were constantly picking at it, pulling, well, yeah, I've called this person about this, not even talking to me. They were they basically took it over. So you know what I did? I gave it to them. This was 12 years ago. Well, fast forward, one of them, the one who did this, she became an advisor for this organization very recently in the last, I think the last week or two weeks. I saw a newsletter where she was stepping down from her position because of personal problems, but I already knew what the personal problems were. She has problems with racial stuff. And I, I wrote a letter, I mean, I wrote an email to not her, but the person above her and said, I'm very happy to see that you all are now going to have diverse voices being heard in this organization. This is a woman at the national level. The next thing I know, she's referring me to their brand new diversity, I mean, uh, their diversity and inclusion director and before I could say anything, I had a meeting with this woman yesterday, and this is what she said, the new diversity and inclusion. She said, I went and uh, looked at your LinkedIn page, and I was like, oh my God. She said, I want to know this woman. And we had a conversation yesterday, and you know what she says to me? And I went, and I, I said, well, here's my experience with them. And I said, I'm glad they hired you, but here's my experience. And I did not know this woman was an international woman. She had lived in um, South America and in Europe, and I lived in Asia and in Europe. So, And she's a black woman, and she says to me, I said to her, I'm preparing a trip now for my daughter to take her to school. She's going to go to Italy, to Florence, Italy to live, and I'm going over there with her. And she says, oh my God, would you please consider serving as an international 
contact for us in Bologna, Italy, because we give conferences over there. I said, what? And she says, and this position that this girl has um, vacated, would you, would you think about taking that? I said, no, I don't want that position. She says, no, don't say no yet. I need somebody to help me with this diversity and inclusion piece. I need a voice, somebody who's unafraid. You have a voice. And I need you in my board of advisors. Now, think about this. The same organization that spit me out 12 years ago, now they're coming to me because they want my loud voice. They want my voice. They'll speak directly to these issues. And this was just yesterday. And I'm thinking, is this not full circle? I've never changed who I am. So my, my counsel to women is don't change who you are, but purify and transform who you are. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, and, and Gail, I have to tell you, those guys were not ready, but now they're ready. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I have been in those situations when I feel like I'm being way ahead of something and, yes. and, and they were not ready, even though they wanted, they needed, they, they, they're saying they're ready, but they were not ready, A, to do the work, right? A, to do, B, be committed, B, whatever it is. So yes. that, like sometimes, uh, you know, we, we see things ahead of the time very clearly. Yes. And, yes. and know what the path forward is. But again, uh, it's not just even on the buying. Deep down, they know they need to do change something. But then it's like climate was different, was comfortable, whatever yes. was the scenario there. Yes. And now it's like that cannot fly anymore. They know they cannot fly anymore. <laughs> so I'm, I'm so glad to hear this great uh, success story. How, again, being authentic, real, genuine, um, speaking your truth, uh, it's always, always trendy. That never oh, goes away. One thing. Somebody asked me a question yesterday, and I just love this. I'm putting it in a book. But uh, they were saying, well, Gail, with all the shifting that we're doing now, what do you, what do you see? How do you see us stopping? Because we, we're all on shifting sand. I said, no. It's like when you have an earthquake. You have the Teutonic plates, mm -hmm. right? I said, everybody's standing and everybody's shifting. And do you know how you're going to survive the shift? We must grab each other's arms and learn to shift together. Because if you stand by yourself, you're going to fall between the plates. And they're like, it's such a simple truth. And they're like, oh my God. I said, if we grab each other's arms, not hands, but arms, and we shift together our weight, we will all be able to survive this. But if we don't do it together, we're going to fall between the plates individually, one after the other. But if we're forming a solid chain of people, a chain of a humanity's chain, male and female, black, white, uh, yellow and red, I promise you, children too, we will survive this. But we will not survive it if we try to do it individually as communities. It's, it's just that simple. There's a shifting. And with that shift comes transformation. And it will be something different, something new. And like you, you were saying, on, we were saying earlier in the conversation, we have to create a new narrative, create a new universe. Absolutely. And it seems like you've been so powerful and doing that for so long. And if you don't mind, just for listeners and, and people that are watching, also tell, um, you know, it's like you seem to like accomplish so much. What is left to your bucket list? And, and what do you are now focusing on as, as your legacy? Obviously, you, your book is coming up. You're uh, elevating um, voice for true need of today's diversity and inclusion concepts for us not only to coexist, but to be truly integrated uh, yes. on, on, on human level with one yes. another, which I'm super excited. And that is something that I had a passion for so long. So to find someone who is absolutely um, 
as passionate or not even more passionate than I am and also brings different voice and different experience. It's, it's, it's just such a delight. So do you mind just giving us a little bit of that flavor? What's in the bucket list and what you are now driving as your legacy after all those great accomplishments? Thank you so much. Um, my bucket list is to see the Aurora Borealis. <laughs> <laughs> That, that might be not far from possibility. Yes. You never know see, who I know and who knows who. <laughs> oh, yeah. I want to see that. I want to see God finger paint in the sky. That's what I call it. Uh, that's really, um, I'm, but what I really want to stress to women and, and men is legacy. What are we giving the next generation? Um, case in point, I decided, um, I was told I could not have children. And when I turned 40, I got pregnant. Mm. Okay. So I had my first child at 41. And then at 42, I got pregnant again and I had my second child at 43. So I was faced with, okay, what, what am I going to put into these children to help them uh, craft a, a world, a different world than, 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 um, than I lived in. And they are now um, 21 and 23. Um, so what I did was I did something that a lot of people were thought I was nuts about. I pulled them out of school in middle school. Um, my, my daughter was in the eighth grade. My son was in the ninth grade. And I pulled them out of school and I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to, we're going to learn. We're going to do a totally different thing. I'm not using any curriculum from anybody else. You're going to learn how to interact with people and do things differently. Um, because they don't teach you this in school. I said, you know, this is what I told them. I said, if you can read, write and speak, you can get in any door and you can always use a calculator to count, count your money. Those were the principles. <laughs> Literally, those were the principles that I talked to them about. So I taught them how to write proposals. I talked to them. Brilliant. How, oh, my God. I wish you were in my life earlier. Oh, my God. I taught them how to do one-sheeters. I taught them how to do um, essays, how to do analysis, how to, how to um, uh, research. I taught them how to think, not yeah. to, to just what about society is, but how yes. to think and have their own opinion and yes. educated statements and then decisions. Yes. And so what happened was that was my dream for them. And I told them, I said, if I'm messing up, you can correct it in your 20s. You can go to school on your phone or on your tablet. That's what I told them. If I messed up, you guys can correct it in your 20s. Well, because I had this dream and this focus, I did not tell anybody. I just spoke it. Um, this a retired IBM executive comes up to me one day at an event. He says, Gal, do you know any children are interested in technology? I didn't care if my children weren't. I knew he had something that they needed. So I said, I have children, two of them. He said, well, can they come after school? I said, I'm homeschooling them. He said, what? He took my children and did a grueling six-month internship at Starbucks. Starbucks became their classroom. And every week they come in, they feed them Starbucks. They, give them, they gave them free meals because they knew they were getting educated. And what he did was he was so grueling with um, analysis and research. They, were, they would be up late, late, late at night. I'd hear them. I'd go to bed. I'd wake up at 6 in the morning. They were still up discussing, writing their papers they had to submit to him. So he taught them how to do research papers. I had already taught them how to do proposals. We had deep discussions about self, about finding yourself, about with this IPD principle. So my children had this really different experience. So at the end of that, I said, you're going to go to school. Now, this is something I did. I said, you're going to go to school and you're not going to take the SAT. 
I'm just not going to have that. I'm not going to have you stressed. I saw too many people's children falling out. And I said, I'm not doing it. And I said, we're going to find a college where you won't have to do that. And they're looking at me like, what? Well, we found the Art Institute because my children are creatives. My son is a digital editor. My daughter is in fashion and she's a graphic designer and a photographer. They, they got into, and let me, the entrance for the Art Institute was they had to write a paper about themselves. <laughs> so the faculty called easy, me. Easy peasy. <laughs> I mean, I know, they were like, we were so in awe of your children's essays. And I'm thinking, what? It's just what they do. I wanna, and by the way, I forgot, while they were in high school, a NAFI, the National Association for Female Executives, whenever someone would ask me to be in leadership, I said on one condition, that my children become teen advisors. So I put, they have that on their resume, wherever I go, they go as a teen advisor for the millennial or what do you want to call it, Gen X advisors. So everybody's like, what? And I taught them how to do that. I said, what do you think about this? Tell me what your generation thinks about this. I use them um, as resources for me to help me see the world through their eyes and to understand today's- so You today's can relate generation. it to different groups and work yes. that is upcoming yes. and anticipate the challenges and needs. Yes. Absolutely it's, brilliant, brilliant so you. I, I said, I need you to tell me about today's people. And my daughter's like, mom, you can't say that to our people. Let me tell you about our people. So they're a Gen Xers raised with baby boomer values which is really interesting. So they get indoors that some of their peers can't get into because they understand good manners, honor, integrity, all of those things that I taught them about baby boomers, they take that with them, but they're Gen Xers, you see? So I said, okay, so basically they got in school and um, they, were very, they were light years ahead of their peers and, the, and they were disappointed because they thought they'd be more challenged. Well, half of the school closed down. Okay, so I was like, okay, so so I put them to work for me in my business. My son does my video editing. Matter of fact, the, um, his uh, professor asked him why he was there because his work, she was showcasing his work to seniors, his editing work. And my daughter's my official photographer. She and I have co-written two books together. And as a result of that, I taught them to look outside of the United States. And so I asked my daughter, where do you want to go to school? What do you want to do? She wants, my God. I said, I need for you just to go on the internet and learn. Learn everything you can about what it is that you want to do. Well, my daughter, they, she knows how I feel about diversity, obviously, and how I feel about people disrespecting others. So what she started doing was noticing something that we call culture appropriation. Um, and she's, because she, she, I, my background is also fashion, I had a boutique when I lived in Europe, she noticed that, I forgot the designer's name, one year he did the runway and he had all these tall, thin, white women and they had uh, mini buns on their little buns of hair. Those are not mini buns, those are called bantu knots. They're from Africa. But he culture appropriated those and said he created them and he did not. So my daughter became so livid. Now she watches the board for culture appropriation. And as a result of that, I've helped her to expand her vision. So as we're speaking, we're planning a trip to Italy where she got accepted to Polymoda, one of the top 10 fashion schools in the world. And she's going to be getting a degree in styling and a master's in styling where she's going to help fashion houses avoid culture appropriation. She's already doing, oh my God, she's already doing it. Yesterday, Brilliant. Brilliant. There's, a, there's a designer um, here in America and they do all the jewels for our celebrities. This is what happened and she just closed it off yesterday. Um, she saw on Instagram that they had these beautiful three rings and they said, eeny, meeny, miny, mo." which one do you choose? She said, ouch. 
she said, that's not, she said, you better, I need for you to take a look at what you're saying. She did a private dialogue in the back, what she did. She educated their social media director and said, do you know where that comes from? It's what slave owners use for black people. Any, any, my, catching in by the toe. And they were like, oh my God. And she gave them the reference point, gave them the, um, uh, uh, the article, Wikipedia, and, she, and they were like, thank you. And she told them, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to Polymoda in Italy just to become a diversity image strategist so I can help companies like yours avoid these type of mistakes that are culturally, could be cultural. And the, they thanked her. She says, oh, can we stay connected? This just happened yesterday. But she had another Brilliant. one. She had another one with a French designer who got upset with her, but she told her she had the, um, the Black Power Fist. The woman had a black t-shirt and she had taken the black power fist and made it white. And she said, look, that is the fist from the black power. The woman said, no, this it's just a fist. She says, no, here are the other fists, variations. But this is a fist. You've just taken it and inverted the colors. The woman said, you need, you owe me. She said, if you don't take it down, she said, if you're going to use it, do this. Why don't you do, uh, um, donate a part of the proceeds to Brianna Taylor's family? That way, it makes it okay because you're donating to our cause. But other than that, you, you should not be doing this. The woman got upset. She, Gabrielle sent her an email. She ignored her. She sent her another email. She ignored her. So she said, okay, I'm getting ready to put you out on, on uh, social media. Now, looking at it, Gabrielle is just a little black girl from the South, right? When she put it out there, her girls came from the Philippines. They came from, from Scotland. They came from England. They came from Spain. I mean, young women all over the planet started bombarding this designer because she just made an assumption based upon the little black face that all she knew were probably black girls in the ghetto. Do you, do you see what I mean? But my yes, daughter is undermining the knowledge, the power, yeah. but also disrespect just based on these assumptions. Absolutely. People make all these judgments very lightly. Absolutely. absolutely. So Gabrielle is already doing the work. She's been doing it a while. That is fantastic. And I've, taught her, and I've taught her how to call people out in an appropriate way by sending them a private message, by saying this, is, and she does it so expertly now. So when they interviewed her for this school and she told them what she wanted to do, they were like, oh my God. So she's going to Florence to um, do styling. And Florence you know, is such a beautiful city. Oh my God. I've never been. I'm looking forward to it. Oh my God. So that's the kind of stuff we say legacy. I passed on my fire for diversity and inclusion to my children. Uh, and my son is eventually going to go to Japan because he wants to do um, animation. So they're looking outside the United States to do some things so they, because they have a global worldview, because they've seen the world through our eyes. You gave them the value that they could not get otherwise, life experiences, and then teaching them from those life experiences, which a lot of parents either don't have it or if they do have it, they don't have a time. But you also pointed out something, how educational system actually is ineffective and how these great <laughs> souls find their avenues and can continue and how you extended that beyond yourself. That is so powerful, Gail. Thank you. Well, you know, parents can do it. Thank you. They can do it. You know what? I have this thing called the power of 10. You take 10 minutes a day for your child, just 10. Uninterrupted minutes without your phone, without them, and let them talk to you and say, what happened to you today? Just 10 minutes. And I've watched parents transform their relationship with their children, and it's just called the power of 10. Take 10 minutes, don't answer your phone. Get in their room, get in their faces and say, what's going on? And talk. And let them know, let them talk and you shut up. You will find out some amazing things and you tell them, if you watch, watch the clock, 
and we go past 10 minutes and you let me know when 10 minutes is up, you get a bonus 10 minutes. You can get up 30 minutes, let's go and talk and just shut up. Don't interrupt them, don't judge them. Let them pour out. I promise you your relationship with your children will change. I've watched it. I've given this advice to so many people. I started years ago and when I was teaching my children how to tell time with the analog clock, I said, watch the thing, you're gonna get 10 minutes. And they came, even when they were teenagers, I want my 10 minutes. I'm like, okay. And then I- That then is brilliant. That is brilliant. So we do have the time. We do have the time. We just don't take the time or people don't give us tools like this to use the time. You have to ask for the time on have an adaptive relationship that we can be vulnerable, open and going deep into these conversations and without having judgment and creating the space and allowing these beautiful things to unfold. When we're in suffocating environments, judgmental environments, toxic environments or environments that just simply don't care, it's impossible to create something such a beautiful to blossom. So you have to nurture that. So that is fantastic. So if anybody listening here can get out of it, I mean, so many golden nuggets, but the one is obviously create your own environment, nurture it and create amazing things that can flourish. Yes, you can do it. it. I mean, just 10 minutes, start with 10 minutes, even if it's not your child, your spouse. 10 minutes uninterrupted, just say, talk to me and shut up. I mean, even if, if you know what, and, I, and women say to me, well, I've said it to my husband and he won't talk. I said, and what did you do? You want him, you want to make him talk. I would sit there right in his face for 10 minutes and not say anything and just look at him. Oh, you're going to say, I'm going to wait till you talk to me. But see, we get offended and there's no need to get offended. You be consistent. Eventually people will connect with you, but you must be consistent because he'll probably say, she's not going to keep this up. Give him something he does not expect. I believe in giving people unexpected stuff and say, I love it. I love it. (laughs) Just go. And eventually, when you do that, what happens is people connect. They're going, Oh, wait a minute. I'm not going to get myself set up to be hurt because this is too good. If I get 10 minutes, I'm, this is too good. And you'll hear hear things like, Just 10 minutes and say, Yes, that's a good start. Instead of getting offended, say, Don't you think that's a good start? And shut up. The biggest issue I found with other women is they won't shut up. Just shut up. As much as I talk, when I get around men, I shut up. When I get around my children, I shut up. And I say, okay, talk. Because I want to hear their heart. I want to hear what they're not saying. Oh, and we're so you're going to know how to help them. It's where you know where they're at and when they have that trust that they can share with you. Otherwise, often people hear when it's too late. And that's why we sadly have way too many teenagers committing suicide. Yes. Other ways to... Uh, cope. We also see insane uh, children abuse, sexual uh, labor, emotional, and it's uh, usually too too late when too much damage is done. But That's to right. see through everything you've been through and perseverance and such a beautiful, uh, intuitive, transformative ways to be not only in your life, but in the life of your children, I, it's an amazing legacy. And I'm excited about upcoming books. And I cannot wait to have you on the show again. Thank so, um, Gail, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you here <laughs> today and, and, and hear all those amazing um, points of life that helped you going no matter what. So, again, thank you for sharing your self-explicity on all of these things, and uh, we look forward to having you again. Thank you so much for honoring me with the gift of your time and being a guest here, Isabella. 